If you are not aware, uh, right now where, where we are, uh, usually our bread and butter is going to be teaching through books in the Bible. If you're not familiar with kind of our style, and we don't mean just picking a, a verse or anything like that. We literally mean trucking through. So from day one, we went through the gospel of Mark and then there was, you know, intermittent breaks in there. We would take a week off or what it is, whatever it is. And we went through some Advent time and, and, and took a couple weeks in there, but then we went through the book of judges and, and now there's four, a four week break where each congregation, cause redemption church is one church with 10 different congregations. Each congregation, um, is isn't doing something that everyone else is doing. And we decided to do something called rhythms. But after this, um, we're, we're going to get into the book of Titus and then the book of Psalms and so on and so forth, which we're excited for. But this is the last week of our rhythms. What we decided um, as elders, we would thought would be good for us as a church to kind of nail down some of the fundamental things that Christians should know. And so the first week in this is we had a celebration of a year of community that God has brought us together corporately. We did baptisms and that was great because community is a huge pillar for us. Um, The second one is we talked about mission as we went through Matthew 28 and the purpose of mission and how mission is all of life um, and everything that we do wherever we are. And then last week, John Demeter, an elder here, led us through prayer. What is prayer? Why pray? Um, Walked us through that because we believe prayer is a huge component of what we do. And then this morning, we're going to talk about the word. Now, I had given a warning, um, I, I believe last week or two weeks ago, that um, it's not going to be as pragmatic as maybe some of you would like. It's not going to be as easy to go, this is, um, this is how you should read or whatever it is. Um, it's going to feel a little bit more, a little bit more like an apologetic um, for the Bible. And it's going to feel that way because it is. Um, and so about three times a year, I will come up here instead of ranting and raving about something. I'm going to try to do my best to follow my notes, um, and to stay here, um, stay behind the music stand and walk us through some things because, um, it's important. And, and I did this when it came to the pro-life conversation, when it came to the homosexuality conversation. Now I want to do this when it comes to, um, defending why we believe the Bible is what it is, um, why we choose to go through books in the Bible and not just, um, some type of topical thing or, or more importantly, why the Bible in general, why not the Quran or the, the book of Mormon or the three baskets within Buddhism? Why, why not those things? Um, why the Bible? And so for me to do that, um, I'm going to give the longest, uh, uh, kind of preface to a sermon that I've ever given. Um, and it takes about 15 minutes to give, but I need you to understand why I'm going to give it because it is a big deal. Um, and, and us getting uh, to the place where I, I need to defend the Bible. And this is something I've been wrestling with over the last year, and I've, I've walked all the current sur- people who are going through surge right now. There's about 20 people going through our surge leadership development program right now, um, and even talked to a couple other people outside of that with some of the things that I've been wrestling with and really coming to see within early church and thought in the Western mind. And, and here's what I mean. So um, I need you to put your thinking caps on. We, we ready? Okay. Um, because we're going get, to get into some weighty philosophical waters, um, but I, I, I trust that we can do this well. Um, if I talk loud enough and fast enough, then I think we can get it, uh, get it done. So here's, here's where I want to start. Um, in general, uh, we have two, and this is an oversimplification, two very large um, baskets in the way that we learn. Two huge spheres or ways of learning. And for the most part, you and I have always kind of been in one camp. And by mostly, pretty much all. All all the way that we have learned, if you grew up in the West, specifically in America, we have learned one way. But the reality is there's actually two big baskets. And a guy named Adrian Smith, who is a professor at Redeemer Seminary, really has helped me see what these two baskets look like because um, I I think it's going to be helpful. And uh, for the sake of uh, oversimplification, specifically talking about the Bible in antiquity, um, I'm going to use the the, the language of these two ways of learning is there's a Jewish model of learning and there's a Greek model 
model of learning. Now, when I say the ways of learning, I don't mean just practically in the way that we learn, because some of you are aware that the Jewish model of learning is you come alongside someone, you live with them, you learn under them. It's kind of learn as you go. And the Greek style model is is you sit in a classroom and it's information download. That's not what I'm talking about. It actually goes a lot deeper than that. And and I hope in some ways um, this can be helpful for you to understand, because we, if you're sitting here, most likely if you grew up in the Western world, have learned how to think like a Greek. And I don't mean just sitting in a classroom, but I mean literally mentally, the way that you understand things have been through Greek thought. And here's what I mean. The way that a Greek thinks is, a Greek thinks through compartmentalized, systematic, um, uh, uh, set boundaries, okay? So you have learned to have your maths and your sciences and your histories. That's the way we've learned. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. There really is nothing wrong with that. That's, we've learned this way. A lot of people learn really well this way. And this is the way that we've understood. It's very systematic. It's very um, uh, neat. And it's very tidy. Here's this, this, this. And I can understand these things. From this hour, I go to this class. This hour, I go to this class. And, and it's broken apart, okay? But what if I told you that the way you and I have always learned in that Greek model is not the only way people learn? I'm having the opportunity to be able to travel for the most part, all around the world and seeing um, the Western world impose uh, Greek traditions or philosophy or, or what is called Westernizing people. You see this a lot in the Philippines. You have Western, you know, Westerners, uh, as, as they'll describe it, even the Filipinos, they'll, they'll, they'll be Westernized. They'll start to dress like a Westerner, whatever it is. Well, you see this in the education and, and, and the, the other big mold is what I'm trying to put in front of you. Um, and it's important that I put in front of you because ultimately it's, it's how the Bible presents information. And, and, and the Eastern or the Jewish way of thinking, so the Greek, which is the Western kind of thing, which if you ever want to read a very big, very dense, very boring book, which everyone does. There's a book called Passion of the Western Mind by a guy named Tarnas. Um, and it's a very, uh, yeah, it's rough, but he talks about this, how Plato and Aristotle have so seeped into the American ethos. We don't even know that we learn the way that we do, but we've always learned this way. But if there is another way to learn, and it's important for us to know that, then, then that's what I want to talk about. And there is, and that's the Jewish or the Eastern model which is um, completely different because here's, here's um, um, how, just the, the, the largest part that I want to get into. Um, it's not through compartment, uh, compartmentalizing things. It's not through systematic approaches. It's not through buckets. It's not through any of that. Everything has to do with story. Everything has to do with narrative. And this becomes problematic when we read our Bibles, doesn't it? Because we've been taught to think like a Greek, we come to the Bible, but the Bible has been written through Eastern um, story, meta-narrative thought. And we come to the Bible with our Greek minds and we try to compartmentalize it. So what we've created is something called systematic theology. Pause. If you are a theologian in the room and you are a neat neck and you... I love systematic theology. I am pro-systematic theology. But here is the problem with systematic theology. When systematic theology is ultimate and it trumps over narrative, then systematic theology has become a problem, okay? So, so here's what I mean. Um, we have come to God. You can even get a degree in this. It's called an MDiv, a master in divinity. You have mastered the divine. Congratulations. You, 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 have, you have God and you, can, you break him up. And this is how I understand God. So if I introduce someone to God, I, I go, yes, he's immutable. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. I have, I have broken down the attributes of who he is, right? This is how I introduce God. But the reality is we don't read God like that in the scripture, do we? 
We don't come across God and go, oh yes, this chapter is on his omniscience. This chapter is on his omnipresence. This chapter is on his immutability. Immutability is a fancy term for, for saying unchangeable. He doesn't ever change. The problem is we're reading the Bible and we're going, this doesn't, this doesn't work in my compartments. <laughs> like I'm coming across the text and going, I don't know what to do. But, but what, the, way this, the way that we think like this, like a Greek in compartments, we, we have certain questions. And so the fancy word that I need you to understand is this is called epistemology. It's the way that we learn. That there is a way that we learn in Greek and there's a way that we ask questions. There's a way that we, we get information and knowledge and it's our epistemology. We take our Greek epistemology and we impose it on the Bible. Let me give you a perfect example. This is the example I've used over and over when talking to people about this. In Exodus chapter 34, um, there's a story of Moses. He's up on a mountain talking to God and God sees that the people of Israel, as Moses is up on the mountain, the people of Israel are down on the mountain. They have made a gold calf and God is not happy. They're sinning. They're worshiping this gold calf that they made with their own hands. He's not happy about it. So God is fuming, says, I'm going to kill everyone. I mean, read it. You're like, I'm going to kill them all. Okay. And it seems like as you read that passage, Moses suddenly becomes the sane one and God's crazy. Moses is like, now God, remember who you are. No, let me at him. God, 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 just calm down. You made a promise. And it seems like Moses is talking God off the cliff. Now, now what you do is you read that story with your Greek mind, you come to it and you go, um, wait a minute, I thought God was immutable. I, I thought he was never changing. Why is he changing? Why is he upset? And Moses talked him out of not killing. Now he's not going to, I thought God was omnipresent. If he was all there, all knowing then why is he upset? Why is he acting surprised? Well, because the story is not about that. So the difference between thinking like a Jew and thinking like a Greek, here's the big part of all of this is what the Bible does is it takes your questions, all the questions that you have thinking like a Greek, and it looks at them and it goes, that's not the right question. Let me give you the right question. And then it answers those questions. And this infuriates us as Greeks because we want to know where evil comes from. We want to know how we can prove there's a God. Unfortunately, the Bible just assumes from Genesis 1, there's a God. It never goes, you can give the ontological argument, the cosmological argument. It doesn't lay out all these things. It just assumes. And your Greek mind wants to compartmentalize this. And so it has questions. Because you have these questions thinking like this, where does evil come from? The Bible does not answer where evil comes from. And this can infuriate us. So my challenge to you is thinking through this is to understand ultimately that when we read the Bible, this is where why, why studying the Bible outright is so different, different because um, it's infuriating sometimes because it's not just telling us what to do, but it's telling us actually how to think. It's trying to really change the way that we think and process information. And so um, I bring this, all of this up. The reason I process this is just in apologetics in general. If you don't know what apologetics are, it just means defense. In talking to your atheist buddy or your friend who doesn't know or family member who doesn't want to believe in Jesus and they have all these things, you need to understand the frustrating part that you, you find in all this is, um, well, let me give you an example. So if your friend comes up to you and says, hey, can you prove there's a God? Okay. So this is a, okay. If God was real, then prove that, that he's God. Okay. I want to, again, I want to use what is called and you don't have to be these terms, but cosmological argument or teleological argument. I want to use some type of um, argument that I can argue, but the reality is, and, and maybe this just is me being lazy at this point, but really the, 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 what I want to do in those moments and what I've done the last two times when I've had these conversations is I just simply say, what do you mean by proof? Because if you mean prove naturalistically, well, that's problematic for me because I don't believe God is 
of matter. He's of spirit. So you're asking me to use matter to prove a, I believe God is, so, so I, I really feel like I'm pinned in a corner. When you mean prove, you mean use the sciences. You mean test in a lab. But you've totally dismissed like philosophy and reason. You, 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 you want something hardcore evidence and God is spirit. He's not basing his reality off of that. Do you understand the difference? You see, see how so if we think like a Greek, but, but here's how um, Adrian Smith would argue that Eastern or Jewish people think, and I would say ultimately um, the, the Bible w- would push for. How can I prove there's a God? The story. The story is real. I'm telling you I'm living in the story and everything the story talks about, it confirms the reality that I live in. Like this story is true. And you go, well, okay, but... You, I'm just telling you, this is, this is all the books that I've read. This is how they process it. And it's hard for us to get our mind around, but here's the reality. Here's why I say all of this large preface in the beginning. Because if I'm going to sit up here and try to prove that there is a Bible, I got to be honest with you guys, as the guy who gets up here and teaches most often, um, <laughs> I do not, everything we're going to lay out this morning, I don't look at and go, that makes me want to read my Bible more. There's nothing about the approach that I'm going to give you this morning that gives me a desire to want to meditate on it more, to want to memorize it more, to want to study it more, to want to just read it more. None of the things that I'm going to lay out to you, you want to know what makes me want to read it more? Because I've read it and it does something within me. Like I'm telling you, I've read it and it best corresponds more than the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Three Baskets in Buddhism, that whatever it is, all these other books, I'm telling you, it best corresponds with reality and it makes my heart pump. Um, I, I, would, I would confirm, I got a gang load of quotes for you this morning. Um, Samuel Taylor, he's an English poet. This is what he says. I have found in the words of the Bible, my innermost thoughts, songs, my joy, utterances of my hidden grief and pleading for my shame and feebleness. So if I was going to be honest, I'm going to think like a Greek and I'm going to present the Bible um, as a Greek. But here's the reality. That is not what motivates me to read. I honestly don't believe, and maybe for some of you intellectuals in the room, it will, but I do not believe this is what will drive you to read your Bible more. I don't. I really don't. I think you experiencing, you, you feeling the weight of this changes you. So with that said, let's think like a Greek. Okay. Um, if you can open your Bible to Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 9, we are not going to exegete it. We're not going to break it down and, and parse any verbs. I want to just read it and ask a question. And it's the same question that I would ask as Molly came up and read the text for her verse. Um, and the question that I want to ask is, is this true? That's all it is. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. As you turn there, you, 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 uh, you don't even have to. It'll be on the screen as well. I should have told you that before you started turning. Um, But like I said, we're only going to be there for 30 seconds. This is what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The question I want to ask is, is that correct? The the words I want to, is God's word, Is his law perfect? Is it sure? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it true? Is it true? The Bible you have in your hands, can you sleep well at night knowing you gather all life from it? Are you okay with that? 
Now, um, if you're a thinker, you immediately see the um, circular reasoning we're going to get into because I'm asking whether or not the Bible is true when the Bible is saying it's true. Therefore, we believe the Bible's true because the Bible said it's true, right? Okay? But, but the, the, the irony of all this, if I try to use um, some more of an ultimate authority, I'm saying that authority is bigger and is what proves the Bible to be true. There, in turn, this is now the ultimate authority. So in some ways, um, inevitably, we're going to be stuck with circular reasoning. Um, and if I lost you, m- my apologies on that. Um, Here's what I'm going to do. I want to start with some basics, just so when I say the Bible, I want to define what I mean by the Bible, um, because there are different Bibles out there. I want to define very specifically what I mean. And some of this, if you went through our foundations class, is going to be old hat to you, um, but a lot of it I'm going to go in depth the best I can to some of this. So here's what I mean by the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a collection of 66 different books, 66 different documents. Um, If you grew up Catholic, that means we do not include the Apocrypha. I don't have time to get into the Apocrypha, which is seven books, essentially written during the intertestamental period. Um, and if you grew up Catholic, give me grace when I'm about to say this, but most are probably seen as, as um, falsely documented, but I, I don't want to uh, get into that right now. But we don't hold to the Apocrypha. We have 66 documents, um, 27 of which are in your New Testament. Number two, the Bible was written approximately by 40 different authors. Many of the Bible's authors came from different educational and cultural backgrounds. We believe those authors, those 40 different authors, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, these authors, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men being carried along by the Holy Spirit uh, presented to us what we have as our Bibles. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. Many of the authors didn't even know each other. Um, number five, the Bible was written in three different languages. Or I'm sorry, number four. Um, yeah, it, it was separate, separated by hundreds of miles of ge- geography um, in a variety of places in three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. That's where the Bible was written. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Greek, predominantly in the New Testament. Um, Hebrew, predominantly in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks very briefly in Aramaic in the Gospels and some Aramaic uh, for the Psalms in the Old Testament. Uh, and then the last thing is, it's written in a wide variety of literary styles. This is a, a big deal for me as I've thought through different books of faith. Um, there's not a lot, there's specific books. So when I say the three baskets, baskets of Buddhism, they have a very specific book for rules. They have a very specific book uh, uh, for, for the way that you would live life. Or, uh, um, anyway, we're not going to get into all that. But, but the point is, there, there's specific things, but the Bible is kind of this mishmash of, according to the list that I have, I might be wrong, but I have poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, treaty dialogue, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire even, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and allegory. That's all in your Bible. So it's important for you to be a student of the Bible to know what you're reading. Because if you're reading allegory and you're freaking out that it's reality, well, that's going to be an issue for you, right? Um, Okay, so those are some basic facts. So here's what I'm going to do. Okay, here we go. This is where it becomes extremely academic if we haven't already been there uh, yet, okay? Um, I am going to specifically hone in on the New Testament, and I'm going to give you internal evidence why I believe um, that the Bible is trustworthy, and then I'm going to give you external evidence of why I believe the Bible is trustworthy. I am not going to give you all internal evidence of why the Bible is trustworthy and all external evidence, okay? Um, Ultimately, I'm going to pick a lane in each one of these things, and we're going to drive down it, okay? When I say internal evidence, I mean within the church, how do we know the 27 books that you hold in your hand according to the New Testament are true and right? What makes them 
biblical. Why do we say these are in the Bible, but other books are not in the Bible? Because there were hundreds of other letters circulating around the time of Jesus or after Jesus during the apostles. Okay. So I'm going to give you four things. All right. So again, linear, here we go. Stand true to my notes. Um, as linear as I can possibly be, here are the four things, the reason internally, we're going to start internally, why we have the Bible, uh, the, the New Testament, which we have. Every letter in your New Testament has to be correspondent in some way or another to an apostle, okay? The first thing you need to understand is every single letter, and, and no, this is not like the Reformed guy talking. This is evangelicalism. Every Christian is going to believe this. Anyone who considers himself evangelical, this is why they believe the Bible. So this isn't something just in our camp, um, well, the first thing is it needs to be closely associated with an apostle. So here's what I mean. Jesus lived his life. He did not write a book. Nowhere did he write the memoirs of Jesus. Nowhere. But what he did instead was he took all that he is and all that he knows, and he passed it on to his disciples, to his apostles. And those apostles then took those words and began to write them down. Okay? So let me give you some verses that, that we know for this to be true. Ephesians 2.20 tells us this, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. According to Acts 1, after Jesus ascends, this is what he tells his disciples. Until the day when he was taken up, after he was given commands, he gave... Jesus gives commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We read a passage in Matthew 28 a couple weeks ago where he says, all that I have commanded you, you being the apostles. He were to teach people all that he has commanded the apostles. According to John 14, 26, the, the back end of it, I'll just read. He will teach you all things, talking to the disciples, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Matthew 10, 4, uh, 10, 20 says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you, talking to the disciples. Matthew 10, 14. He actually um, gives the apostles such weight that te- he tells people that if they don't listen to the, uh, the, the disciples, the apostles, then they, they themselves will be judged because they don't listen. This is what it says in Matthew 10, 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what the apostles say, we believe as Christians, the first thing that you need to know to be a Christian is Jesus has given the apostles the ability to write scripture. Understand? Everywhere in the New Testament, they has to be linked to an apostle. So um, even, at, even as you have certain texts, they're, they're associated. So um, the book of Acts is, is associated with Peter, right? And I'm not going to get into all these. If you have questions, that's a rabbit trail we're going to go down to. Now, um, just so you know, furthermore, the, the apostles themselves affirm that what they're writing is scripture. This isn't something we're just making up, okay? Here's some more verses for you. We're gonna, you better get your thinking caps on. We're rolling with this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is talking about a letter that Paul wrote. This is what he says, And count patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks uh, in them of these matters. Hear this. This is a big part of this. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So what did Peter say? There are other scriptures. Paul is with those other scriptures. Um, maybe you're not convinced. Second Peter chapter three, verse two, that you should, uh, that you should, that you should remember the predictions of, hear this, the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and savior through 
your apostles. He, he puts the prophets with the apostles. We see in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, this is the scripture, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain and the labor deserves its wages. Why is that important? Because the first part, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, comes from Deuteronomy 25. But the second part, the labor deserves its wages, actually comes from Luke 10.7. So we're putting this, this is what the scripture says, both Old and New Testament, putting it on par with the Old Testament, the writings of the prophets. This is God's word. It's, it's through the apostles um, there. I, I, would, I would say this is absolutely what the early church saw as well. A guy named Justin Martyr, who was um, a presider over the early church, writes something as he writes to a, a, a ruler in Rome at the time. He says, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And then he goes on to, to give um, other exhortation by what is called the president. So, so the idea being that even the early church knew and recognized it was the apostles that Jesus gave um, uh, this, this ability to. Ironically enough, if you grew up Mormon or no Mormons, the way that Mormons get around this and have the Book of Mormon is they would say there are still living apostles, right? So um, there, there's ways to, to, to get around this. We would say those apostles are long gone. They're dead. As much as they want to say the apostle John is still alive, that's insane. Um, okay. <clears throat> Here's what I'm going to say about this. Um, this makes it really a big deal, right? Because only if the apostles can write it, then everything we have is time sensitive, isn't it? That means we could know all the letters. How can we know what is scripture? Only letters written between 40 AD and 100 AD, we know those are written by the apostles because that's when the apostles were alive. So all other letters written after that are false. They're, they're false. So the first thing that we need to recognize is it has to be associated with the apostle. Here's the second thing. The second thing is, was the letter that are being circulated, all these letters, again, hundreds of letters, were they accepted by the church as canon? Canon just means yardstick, measuring stick. It means the, the 27 books in your Bible are the Christian canon. It's the, the books that measure up. Are they considered right? Are they considered God's word? And according to the, the early church, now, um, if you were alive 10 years ago, which I'm pretty much sure everyone in this room was, um, Dan Brown came out with a book and eventually a movie with Tom Hanks in it called The Da Vinci Code. And oh my gosh, I remember people losing their mind um, as they watched Dan Brown, the theologian, um, uh, continue to give you information, which was ridiculous. I remember... Um, <clears throat> seeing a picture in Portland that it, at, um, in Portland they had the Da Vinci Code on there and it, they had to put subtitles under there. This is not fact. But people are hearing, watching Tom Hanks and they believe everything that he says and does. So, so they're watching this and, and they're going, this is true. And what happens according to Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code is Constantine in the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 397 AD, they decided what books were in the Bible. So they gathered all these books and they said, here's what it is. And that's just not true. That's just not what happened. The, the, what the Council of Nicaea did was they looked at the books that were already accepted and they said, okay, these are the books that are accepted. Here, here's what I mean. Um, I'm going to read a very long quote for you, but I'm going to break it up into two parts. It's by a guy named Justin Taylor who writes for the Gospel Coalition. When people discover that Nicaea did not decide the canon, the follow-up question is usually which council did decide the canon? This whole line of reasoning reveals a fundamental assumption about the New Testament canon that needs to be corrected. Namely, it is, or it was, or had to be decided by a church council. The fact of the matter is that when we look into early church history, there is no such council. Sure, there are regional church councils that made uh, declarations about the canon, Laodicea, Hippo, Carthage, but these regional councils did not just pick books that hap they happened to like, but affirm the books they believed had functioned as fundamental 
fundamental documents for the Christian faith. In other words, these councils were not declaring the way things had been, or these, these councils were declaring things the way that they had been, not the way they wanted them to be. Thus, these councils did not create, authorize, or determine the canon. They simply were part of the process of recognizing a canon that was already there. Okay, so I'm going to get into a little bit more of this. He's going to go on. But in the middle of this, a guy named Bart Ehrman says this beautifully, I think. The canon of the New Testament was ratified by widespread consensus rather than official proclamation. So here's what this looks like. The church, as they're reading these letters, are going, what's the Holy Spirit doing? It's not Greek, y'all. <laughs> there is no, like, two plus two is four. No, no, no. Like, this is, you don't like this. This is too fluid for us, right? Like, they're asking what is this? I mean, think, think, put yourself in their, their shoes. There's hundreds of letters circulating and they're going, what letters seem to be corresponding with what the apostles taught? What is going on? They're forming this and it's not compartmentalized. It's not systematic. It's leaning in. We're trusting a sovereign God over this process. And what these early church, um, our early church brothers and sisters saw is ultimately the other second classification of that canon. Um, Justin Taylor goes on to say this, this historical reality, everything that we're talking about is a good reminder that the canon is not just a man-made construct. It is not the result of a power play, um, uh, Brook, Brookard, what the, by rich and cultural elites in some smoke-filled room. It was the result of many years of God's people reading, using, and responding to these books. In the end, we can certainly acknowledge that humans played a role in this canonical process, but not the role that is so commonly attributed to them. Humans did not determine the canon. They responded to it. In this sense, we can say that the canon really chose itself. Let me give you an example of this. In about two months, we're going to bring somebody up to you who is an elder in process. And we're going to bring him up to you, and we're going to say, is this man worthy to be an elder here at this church? If you have any issues, let us know within the next three to four weeks. And, and as we do this, the question is going to go, well, did you take him through the First Timothy process, through the Titus process? Did you walk him through these things? But here's the reality that we see um, within elders um, before we even take them through that process. For Redemption Peoria, elders are not placed. They're identified. So we hope that when we bring this man up here, some of you would go, I already thought he was an elder. Like elders are already seen by us as a church going, that guy's living like an elder. He's leading like an elder. I thought he was an elder. We don't say, all right, everyone submit to this elder. You, you as a church have already decided he's an elder. So in some ways, you're deciding the elders. Who do you see as elders? Who do you identify as somebody who's leading this church? Because when we bring him up here, our hope is that you go, I thought that guy was already an elder. Do you understand the nuance to this? This isn't as easy as, let's take him through 1 Timothy, he's good. Let's take him through Titus, he's good. No, it's like us. It's fluid. Uh, so you understand the timeline of this. A guy named Clement from Rome mentions eight New Testament books by 95 AD. Polycarp, he was a disciple of uh, the Apostle John, acknowledges 15 books by uh, 108 AD. Ignatius of Antioch acknowledges additional seven more books in 115 AD. And then you have um, Irenaeus in in, um, in uh, 185 AD, ultimately 21 of your 27 books are clearly seen and they're still working through some of the epistles. Um, and then ultimately more, this is like a, this is not, do you understand how this is difficult? Like you're, you're, you want to like nail this down, but the first two, um, uh, parameters are, it was associated with apostle. Second, it was part of the church. The third thing, wow, I'm running out of time. The third thing is, um, for us internally to look at the church is to look at this. And I would call this one B or two B. Did it consist of consistent document or uh, doctrine? So as they're reading this, they could be reading according to um, the Gospel of Thomas. This is, and I quote from Thomas, Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, lo, 
I shall lead her so that I will, I may make her a male that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. They're reading that going, nope. (laughs) So did it correspond with doctrine, right? Like sex changes. How do we do this? Right? No, they're reading this and what books were easy to identify in the gospel of Peter. Jesus comes out of the tomb. He grows the size of a giant so big that his heads are in the cloud and he's running away from the cross that keeps yelling at him. And you're reading that going, nope. Right? Because the apostles so early on taught people new. No, no, that's not what the apostles taught. Wait, no, no, no. That's not what the apostles taught. If we all went to a basketball game, we all saw this and someone said, oh, that's what happened in the game. All of us would go. No, that's not what happened in the game. So this is how they're identifying. That's the third thing. The last thing and the thing I will finish with um, for the, the four things, and this is, if you are not a Christian in here, this is the one you will like the least, and it by far is the most subjective. Um, it is, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? Um, to put in simple terms, did it move you? When, when the early church read this book or you read this book, does it move you? Does it do something within you? There's a document called the Westminster Catechism. Um, There's a shorter catechism and a larger catechism. If you're a Christian, you're not familiar with this. It can be very helpful because what this does is um, hundreds of years ago, Christians got together and they said, what if we start asking just the generic questions and are able to answer them? So what is God? What's the purpose of man? What is prayer? They're just asking these questions, and there's hundreds of questions asked that they answer. And it's a very helpful document. It's called the Westminster Catechism. If you're not familiar with it, there's a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. Well, in the catechism, the larger catechism, the question of how do we know the scriptures are the word of God? This is honestly what they say. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto to salvation. But the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures is the, in, in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that, we, that they are the very word of God. For them, at the very end, all these things are good, but I'm telling you, we know this is the Bible because it moves us. And I, I understand that's subjective because that's what the Mormons can say. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses can say with the New World Translation. That's what Buddhists can say. That's what Muslims can say. I get it. But this is, this is a big criteria. This was a big deal. So there's the four things internally why you have the Bible for what it is. But maybe that's not fair. Maybe to look internally only is not fair. So I want to look externally. What if we treated the book, the Bible, um, how can you sleep at night? How can you trust that the Bible is what it is? And I hope this is where it gets somewhat interesting. I want to read a quote from a guy named Wayne Grudem to kind of launch this external piece. Um, The question of how we know that we have the right books can secondly be answered in somewhat of a different way. We might wish to focus on the process by which we um, became persuaded that these books have uh, have now in the camp. We have now, I need to slow down. Now, in the canon are the right ones. In this process, two factors are at work. The activity of the Holy Spirit convincing us as we read scriptures for ourselves, so what we just talked about. But the second thing, and the historical data that we have available for our consideration. Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which if you are more interested in this, that book is money. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Read it, soak it up, and reread it again. If you want to know how can I know the Bible is right, It is every nook and cranny of possible question you can ask. This is what he says. 
the historical reliability of the scripture should be tested by the same criteria by which all historical documents are tested. You understand what he's saying? If we can say internally, this is why we believe the text, but are we sure that like things haven't changed? How do you know like man didn't meddle with all of this? Like, how can we know that this is the actual word of God? Like, how, how do we know that, that this is actually what was written? Um, so we could go through the archaeological proofs or the pro- prophetic proofs or even writing style proofs. But I've got to pick a lane and I'm going to do something called the variant proof. And this is something I do through our foundations class. And I hope in some ways this helps. But here's where I'm going to start. Here's the second thing you need to know as Christians. Okay. We believe, I'm going to use every single word right here very intentionally. We believe the original manuscripts. When I say original manuscripts, the pen to the paper with Paul, the pen to the paper with Peter, the pen to the paper with James, whoever it is, we believe those original manuscripts were infallible. They were inerrant. They are perfect. But we do not have any of those original manuscripts. You hold in your Bible, the the Bible you have in your hands, give me grace, I'm not liberal, okay? Give me grace, is not perfect. It is not infallible. It is not inerrant. We believe the original manuscripts are inerrant, but we don't have any of those original manuscripts. Does that scare you? Yes, it does. No, it shouldn't. Uh, Let me give you an example why this should not scare you. George Washington, 1750, I believe he was born sometime in the 30s or something. 1750, is about 20 years old. Um, 1776, obviously, is where America has its birth, and so he kind of sees that on the horizon, and so he decides to write a 100-page paper. This is not true, by the way. I'm making this up. Um, He decides to write a 100-page paper on how he believes government should work, okay? So he writes this 100-page paper, and um, uh, let's say they don't use the Gutenberg press, but because, you know, colonies are being established, so first thing they want to do is they start copying by hand every single thing George Washington writes, okay? This goes on for 50 years as one guy is only doing this copy and then another guy is taking a copy of those copies. But at the end of it, um, at the end of 50 years, I believe George Washington died in 1799. Um, when he dies, we lose the original letter that he had. I don't know if he was buried with it, if he hid it, if he burned it. We have no idea what he did, but we know that he wrote this 100-page letter, but we don't know what the original paper, the original letter said. What are we to do? If we are to treat, this is not New Testament, this is not biblical, this is just historical written, um, uh, uh, I don't know, historical written, like the way that you would do this, I can't think of the word, Um, but this is how we would do this process. They would take the 10 copies, say 10 copies in those 50 years, copy of a copy, someone had this copy, they would take these 10 copies, and if we're going to have any type of integrity, we're going to take these copies, and we're going to fold them on top of each other, we're going to look in these layers, and we're going to look for what is called variants. We're going to look where one guy, as he's copying it, for some reason just forgot to write a word. Or maybe he forgot to write a sentence. Or maybe as he's doing it, he went away, get coffee, came back, and he forgot. He picked up on the next page and left an entire paragraph out. What you do with historical integrity when it comes to writing is you take those 10 documents and you line them up and go, nine of these documents have this paragraph. This one doesn't. We recognize this was a mistake. And so what we do is back and forth, every word, every jot, every tittle, everything that you're looking for, all of these things to, for integrity, we go, this is what he says. And you can say in confidence that those letters that, that we have, for the most part, we can get what George Washington wrote. I mean, it's only 50 years and it's 10 documents. This is how we do everything from antiquity. When I say antiquity from, let's say, first century back, this is how we do every document. Let me prove it to you. So here's a chart. Um, 
This is, there, I have like a dozen of these, but I'm only going to show you uh, uh, four of them, okay? Um, so the writings of Caesar, Plato, Tacitus, and Homer's Iliad. If you don't know the, the, the Iliad, that's where we get like the Trojan horse story. It's, it's, um, uh, it's like Greek mythology and all that, okay? So here's what we have. Um, on the, the first column is the date that these things were written. So the writings of Caesar, when it was written, we see that from 100 to 100 BC, so uh, before Jesus Christ, um, is when it was written. And the earliest manuscript that we have of Caesar's writing was in 90 AD. So let me just, to, to break this down, let's use the Iliad um, for easy math. It was written in 900 BC, 900 years before Jesus was born, we'll say. Okay? The earliest manuscript we have now when we look back and we go the Trojan horse, horse story is real. The earliest manuscript that we have is from 400 BC. That means 400 years. So it's 500 years removed. It's an old document, but man, it's, it's pretty good. Some of them, so that's only 500 years removed. If you take um, a Tacitus, you're looking at 1,000 years removed. If you take Caesar, you're looking at, what was that, about 800 years removed, 700 years removed. You get the idea, right? So the earliest manuscript. Now the furthest column, column is all of the manuscripts that we have from that point. We do not have any earlier manuscripts. So, according to Homer's Iliad, which is by far the largest, we have 643 documents, fragments of these writings. We take these documents, we spread them on a table, and we go, how do we know what is right? Well, these five say this, the rest of them don't say that. That's Okay, and we're working through to know what Homer's Iliad, what is true, what is not true, and we teach it at a master's level in academia. We teach it as history in academia. This is taught to our kids. This will be taught to our kids' kids. This is probably taught to you if you are somewhere working on your bachelor's or master's. These things, these documents are seen as facts. How do you know what Plato wrote? Those seven documents, that is just reality. I'm not making this up. Those seven documents are what, how we know what Plato wrote. What about the New Testament? The New Testament is written between 40 AD and 100 AD, and the earliest manuscript we have is from 125 AD. So to put it another way, giving as conservative as possible, we are 25 years removed. 25 years. Some of us have been alive for 25 years, right? Like, so, so all these other ones, thousands of years removed, 25 years, that's it. Some of you could have lived four lives 25 years, right? Jim's not here, I would say his name. Um, so it's, it's immediately removed. Oh, you, 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 you did my Patrice, you know what. So this was my wow factor, okay? My wow factor was how many manuscripts we have, okay? And the 25, from that moment of uh, AD 125, we have over 25, 24, and actually now it's closer to 25,000 fragments of the New Testament. 25,000. So we take 25,000 documents Spread them on the table, which is impossible. That's a very large table. <laughs> we spread them over and we go, what's it say? Now, here's what's crazy. Of these other documents, it, some of them aren't even the full writings of Plato. They're just parts. And that's true for the New Testament, right? But here's what's crazy about the New Testament. 5,000 of those 24,000 are full New Testaments. Full New Testaments. 5,000. So here's my point why I want to show this, why you can sleep at night. Um, if you or your buddy or your family say that the New Testament is not accurate, you are forced to throw out all writings of antiquity. You have no option. Let me read you some quotes. John Warwick, uh, Warwick Montgomery says this, To be skeptical of the res uh, resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically 
as the New Testament. Edward Glennie says, no one questioned the authenticity of the historical books of antiquity because no one, or because we did not possess the original copies. Yet, we have far fewer manuscripts of these works than we possess in the New Testament. F.F. Bruce says this, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual evidence as the New Testament. Guys, we have more facts, more proof than any writing of antiquity. Yes, it is true. And you can say all you want. Check this out. You can say all you want that man's trying to trick anyone. But check it out. Every, can you, uh, let's just leave it. That's fine. All 24 documents, all 24,000 documents are public domain, y'all. Listen, bro, you can learn Latin and you can learn Greek and study them for yourself. So if you want to say man was tricking anyone, then go learn Latin and Greek. Then do it. There, there is no reason. No one is trying to trick anyone. This is why you have footnotes. This is why every Bible that you've read has a footnote. Because they're saying, well, here's what this is written. Now, now um, uh, uh, mathematically, here's how much you, you can trust that we have. The Bibles that you're written, depending on what version is accurate, according to certain apologetic websites, CARM or whatever it is, or Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We are close to, in the New Testament, between 95 and 99.5 sure of what the original manuscript said. As we spread those documents out. Now... Um, If you're a thinker, you're going, well, what about that 5%? What if it says Jesus is a woman? What am I supposed to do, right? What about those 5%? Here's what's crazy. Let's be be as liberal as possible. Let's say it's 95 and there's 5% that we don't know of those documents. We're still unsure of exactly what's said. Of that 5%, 95% of those things are meaningless things. The word and, which is chi in Greek. There's iota, which is a letter in Greek, the, the I in Greek. They're, um, they're, they're apostrophes or whatever it is. They're, 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 they're not big deals. Let me give you two examples so you know um, how much is okay. Can you put up the first John passage? This is, I'm going to give you the, the biggest ones, okay? Of that, that 5%, let me give you the biggest variants of the New Testament. This is in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Uh, the MT and CT, don't worry about it. These are what are called certain codexes. Um, here's another one. So of those 24,000 things, the variant is, some of, some of the manuscripts say that, but other manuscripts add this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And we are. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Let me show you Matthew. This is a big one. If you grew up reading a certain uh, um, uh, Catholic Bible, you'd probably be familiar with this. And this is probably the largest one. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The, the, The other one. Other codex said, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It excludes those parts. But here's what's crazy. No one is trying to trick you. This is what's infuriating sometimes about scholastic arguments. You have footnotes. You have a brain. For the love of God, you have Google. You, you, you can look these things up and you can study these things. You, you, no one is going, <laughs> I'm going to add for yours is the kingdom and they're going to think. Okay, no one is doing that. Furthermore, I would say as Christians, like, let us look towards these men who have devoted their entire lives. Some I've got to study under. Guys like Al Walter wrote a commentary on Zechariah, has devoted his life to celibacy. 50 years, 50 years in one book, Zechariah. 50 years of his life. That commentary goes, he doesn't know this because he's just, is like a hermit, but it goes for $2,000. He's devoted his life to one book. 
Now we're looking going, oh yeah, this is what this word says. He's not trying to trick anyone. He's done the hard work for you. It's in your footnotes. And this is the frustrating part of this because we have more biblical knowledge available to us than ever before, but we have the least amount of discipline in the Western mind in the last hundred years. So here's your job as a Christian. You got to do the hard work. You, it's your responsibility as a Christian, us together as a church to go, what is this saying? This is literally why I, I ventured into learning Greek. What is this saying? What is this communicating? Like even asking the question, what translation do you have, right? Because here's how translations work in, in all of this. Um, uh, when you read Greek, it is a dead language. Koinea Greek is a dead language, not modern Greek, obviously. Koinea Greek is, is a dead language. And so when you read Greek, it's not like English. It, it doesn't work like English. It doesn't have the same rules as English. Sometimes, and, and if you speak Spanish, you know this, it's more poetic. It's, it's beautiful at moments. It's thoughtful. It, it, it's meant to it, like, like show you something, not just write something, a word, and that's the translating word. And so your Bible translators make decisions. So in, in one moment, you have like a thought for thought translation. They're reading the Greek, which is English, is a moving language. It's constantly moving. And you have a translation like the NLT, which I love the NLT. It's the New Living Translation. You read that translation and it's trying to expose the thought of the original Greek. It's trying to get behind what is this saying, the furthest on this spectrum, the thought for thought Bibles, which I would not say this is the Bible, but it's helpful to read is by guiding Eugene Peterson, the message Bible. If you have that, it is not a Bible, okay? <laughs> no matter what Jim Ellis tells us, okay? Um, the, the, the message Bible, the message Bible is, is not looking at the Greek text and going, how can, it's ultimately going like, what is this saying? I'm going to use all modern language. I'm going to, but on the other side, there's people who literally, so like take the interlinear Bibles that are literally just word for word. And you look like you're reading it. And honestly, you sound like Yoda because it's, because Greek is out of place. It doesn't. And so you're like, and beginning was he that like, it's, it's very awkward. And it's the interlinear. It's Greek, English, Greek, English. But as you move down the spectrum, let's say you get to the NASB or the ESV. So these are word-for-word word translations. This is thought-for-thought thought and word-for-word, word, and they're trying to express something. And this is why the NAV, NIV is constantly changing. They're trying to use English, which is a changing language. Gay did not mean, does not mean what it did 50 years ago. So now you're trying to use certain words and understand these languages, which a dead language compared to an English, which is constantly moving language. And so this is our job. We're trying to know what did the original manuscript, because we believe those were inerrant. But the Bible you hold in your hand, without a doubt, you can trust. You can believe that it is what the original manuscript said. And if there is a variant, you can look at your footnotes and see those variants. And if you want to know what the original Greek said in Koinea Greek, then learn Greek. I don't know what else to tell you. So here's where I'm going to finish. Um, I had a couple other quotes, but I'm not going to share them with you. Um, why is this important? And there's two reasons why this is important. The first reason is, if the Bible is true, if it is everything that I just tried to lay out, that it is the original authors, by according to Jesus giving his apostles those writings, the church accepted these documents, and now we believe those documents are the actual documents according to the variant process as we look through these. If that is true, and this man Jesus really did say what he said, really did do what he did, and really did rise from the dead, if that's true, you've got some decisions to make. Because this dude is not... Well, do what you want. No, no, no. He's like, I'm black, I'm white, you're in, you're out. There's a line in the sand. I'm the only way. And so you've got some decisions to make. But the second thing is this, and this is what's crazy, and this is how I'll finish. The Bible, the New Testament that we've just been talking about this whole time, you know what it says about Jesus? It tells us in John 1 that the entire word, the logos, 
is encapsulated in this man. That Jesus is the reflection of the scriptures. How to live, what to do, what to think, how to grow. So when you read the scriptures and you read it in full security, you are studying Jesus. That is a big deal. That is why when you read your Bible, it gives you life because Jesus gives you life. That is why when you read your Bible, you have faith because Jesus gives you faith. That is why when you read your Bible, you have hope because Jesus is hope. So breathe, man. In God's sovereignty, he has given you his word. You can do the hard work to figure it out, to know the one who created all things, the man Jesus Christ. Let's pray.